everyone. Welcome to the JD and Turner show. I'm the Turner bit and joining me is the very unemployed JD. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to have something to do. <laughs> That's right. Well, you've been, you, uh, you've replaced your, your job with uh, a lot of podcasts and shows like that. Like, it seems like you're going to, that's like your next big thing. Yeah. If, I, if only they paid. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's been my life quandary for the last seven, eight years. So <laughs> um, yeah, for, but you probably should open with that. What happened? Talk us through it. <laughs> uh, I am one of many hundreds of journalists now out of, out of a job. Uh, 10 daily, uh, rest at soul is no more. And, and I no longer work for 10. So I'm an out of job journalist, please hit me up. My DMs, (laughs) my DMs are open. If you have a job, if anyone has a role, except for certain notable, uh, publications, which we went out, um, on this show in case you do get desperate enough to take any of them. But, um, it's, uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's a sad reality of the situation that, that, that everyone's in that, you know, people losing their jobs and, and, um, you know, the media particularly, there's, this wasn't the first one. There was news local as well. Um, a lot of people got let go from news local. Um, but you know, I guess it's a stark reminder that there's, there's a person and a voice and opinions behind those numbers when you, when, when you look and see, you know, 2000 people let go and all that kind of stuff. So it, it is, it was very, it was very strange. I mean, considering I, I spent my days writing headlines to see your job loss, your unemployment as, as a headline and, and, mm. you know, media watch covering it and, and that kind of thing. And, but, you know, we are, we did suddenly uh, become a number of, of casualties in this country with AAP uh, looking, hopefully will be bought out. Obviously there'll be job cuts there still, uh, it is understood, but at least there's some hope. That's right. Well, I mean, I guess you've had a bit of free time and at the right time in, in a way in that restriction, I'm trying to put a silver, a silver lining on it um, as restrictions are starting to ease. So what have you been doing to uh, enjoy your newfound free time? Newfound, uh, well, a few of my, I guess, former colleagues now, we went on uh, what we called a redundo retreat. Redundo uh, retreat. I like that. A re- redundo retreat. We, we like that one. Uh, and yeah, we went to a house up the coast and which was a very bizarre to think about uh, that if we had done it two or three weeks earlier, it was illegal. Uh, yeah. On record, it was <laughs> the rule that the rules had lifted enough that what we did wasn't illegal. Uh, but it was just, yeah, sort of debrief and start resume writing and all that fun, fun stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I guess it can be fun. Again, I like the fact that you're continuing the theme of putting the positive spin on it all. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting time for many people because, you know, as, and we'll talk a little bit about this sort of stuff as we go into it, but a lot of people are losing their jobs and, and industries are changing and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's all part of this, you know, as we said last time, the unprecedented, which is a word that you hate, but this oh, unprecedented yeah, this. event. So, <laughs> um, But, I mean... I guess let's jump into, I mean, this is all on the back of a lot of companies um, sort of making changes to their business because Australia's economy is suffering and the world's economy is suffering. Um, And I think this week, one of the big headlines was that Australia is officially in a recession, um, which is something that, you know, if anyone remembers the the campaign during the 
election. It was all this talk about trying to avoid the recession and Australia will be back in black and budget surplus this, budget surplus surplus that. And now we're in a recession. Um, I don't think anyone can blame the current sitting government for that. But, I mean, it's a scary thought for people, but I guess it's scary because people don't really know what a recession is. It just gets bandied around a lot. I think, yeah, it's of no surprise that Australia is in a recession. And like you said, the sitting government can't, can't be blamed for what has happened. If anything, they probably saved Australia from recessions that a recession that would be much worse. Mm. And, you know, Josh Frydenberg has admitted that the June numbers will probably be even worse, um, which is understandable in the current climate. But if you do look at other countries, I think like Spain and Italy are, are so much worse. To, I mean, America. Mm. <laughs> Where is US, that there? I think the US number was what, 9.7% negative growth. <laughs> Um, which is their official number. And I think, I guess for those who don't know, a recession is categorised as two six consecutive quarters of negative growth. Um, and that, that defines a recession. And Australia's number for the last quarter was 0.3% negative growth, which when you take into consideration everything that's happened, it's pretty insane that it was, it's, it's this almost breadline level of, of, of I guess, something, the tiniest amount tipping us over into a recession Whereas, as you said, you know, Spain and Italy and um, China as well, the US are showing huge numbers of negative growth. I think the US today, Comsec released data that stated that they were about to hit 20% unemployment, um, which is a huge number. So I, I guess, you know, to your point, um, we've kind of escaped the worst. Our worst, from what I understood, our worst is yet to come, but it's not going to be nearly as bad as as other countries and as awful as it is and as i say i sit here unemployed and terror genuinely terrified i know i was joking about redundancy before but it's genuinely terrifying not having a job in the current climate and i'm very lucky in my personal situation that i will be okay but for people who aren't I, i can't imagine how stressful that would be and and to think that this is this is still a good result for the country Mm. is you know goodness I think what they're saying at the moment that Australia is on track to avoid a depression, which is a, a more, I guess, long-term of uh, long-term consecutive negative growth or, or quarters with negative or, or, or no, non-positive growth. Um, you know, typically a couple of years is when you start looking at it. So they're, they're saying that Australia will avoid um, that level of prolonged recession activity so that it's almost as if they're sort of saying that, potentially by the end of the year, we could start seeing positive growth back in the economy. And, and that could largely be down to a lot of the schemes and uh, policies they're putting into place now to actually change that and um, to sort of stimulate the economy, I guess. Um, we'll sort of talk about that in a little bit, but I want to jump to a point that we actually put at the end because um, you mentioned employment and obviously there's a lot of people who are unemployed and um, underemployed as well, which is the other big stat they're talking about is that it's not just the unemployment level that you need to look at um, because the unemployment stat is actually based on, an, and I could get this wrong, I'm just going off the top of my head, it's actually based on statistics to do with how many people hand in resumes. Um, so if you hand in resumes in a week, I think it's three, um, somehow that's quantified as being a person who's unemployed. However, if you're not working and you're not handing out resumes and applying, I believe it's tracked through Centrelink, um, then you're not considered unemployed. Um, that sample, that, that sample is not considered unemployed. So 
the stat you need to look at is underemployed because people aren't hiring at the moment. So no one's going out and applying for jobs. So the stat that when they say, you know, there's six to 8% unemployment, that's, that's probably completely misleading. It's probably more than that. Um, and the underemployed level where people are taking less shifts, less work, people who'd work four days a week, they're now only working two. That's as bad as, um, as uh, the, people sort of losing their jobs as well because it's changing everyone's sort of personal situation. So there's a lot of different statistics being sort of thrown around. Um, but there's, there was news this week and, and you brought this up um, is that big companies are now, you know, rewarding um, some of their workers with shares for working during the pandemic. Now, I think a lot of people, shares is a bit of a different concept that doesn't mean anything to them. So you, you, I can understand people being a bit aggrieved in the fact that they're receiving um, shares as opposed to actually being paid extra for their work it's i i will preface this by saying i spent nine years of my life at woolworths i was a checkout chick and i've never been so glad during that i have left that um during this pandemic <laughs> but if someone had given me 750 dollars worth of shares i would have had no idea what that meant mm. and and also these shares only went to anyone they there was a really strict criteria for the people who got it and also anyone had to be over 18 as well most of the staff that i had under me at woolworths or on the checkouts were under 18 and they were money was put on i think some people got about 250 dollars on their rewards cards uh which anecdotally i know a story of one girl who's 17 and her mother uses that rewards card. She's like, well, I'm not going to get the $250. My mom's going to get it. So, you know, and look, Woolworths, I guess they tried to do something nice and I, you get that. But at the end of the day, would it have just been better to put cash in hand, uh, put cash into someone's hand and, and a genuine thank you. And I think Coles did, did something similar ish in terms of rewarding their staff as well. Mm. Yeah, the only cash. Yeah, like the only the only thing I can think of, like you mentioned cash, because I think that's that's probably the key. I actually haven't read this piece or, or done too much research on it, but my the only the only I guess thinking I'm having here is that it doesn't cost them any physical cash to actually reward these individuals. So it's their way of sort of doing it without affecting their balance sheets and their books, um, which, you know, for, from a business and economic perspective may make sense. But again, if everyone starts cashing out their shares, that's going to do some things to their share price as well. Um, potentially there's, there was maybe uh, some sort of clause in the provision that says they can't just sell them um, straight away. Um, but look, look, I'm not too sure, but I mean, you're right though, to, to the everyday punter, like what's the point? Like, as you say, they're going to want the cash. And look, I don't know what Woolworth share prices are at the moment compared to where they have been, but Australia was named this week as the worst panic buyers in the world. Yeah, that's right. Something tells me that Woolworths made a lot of money in the last two months. Yeah, that's right. Oh, they're probably quite, yeah, probably quite cash heavy. Um, yes. <laughs> I was actually very curious about that. So Woolworth shares have actually surged in the last six to seven days. Uh, when I say search, I say relative to the rest of the share market because it hasn't really been doing much. But you know, they've they've gone up a significant amount. So, I mean, that's because they just had a whole seven hundred and fifty dollars times all their stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> but like the the thing that's the thing. Like they've they've obviously made a lot of money. People bought a ton of stuff. I mean, they were talking about 
you know, retail groups having some of their biggest months um, in on record for them. So these companies have the cash. I just think they're just taking advantage of the situation. You know, everyone, no one's going to complain about having a job at the moment and this stuff would have come in, but to, to have them say thank you, because just what you, videos that you saw on social media, if anyone ever spoke to anyone who was working uh, in the stores would have heard the horror stories of, of customers and what they did have to deal with for the past couple of months, which to be honest is, is not much different from the everyday outside of in normal circumstances, mm. uh, just heightened during a pandemic. That's right. I mean, big companies, there's been a lot of really big scalps, I guess. And um, I, I, the, it's the travel industry has probably been hit the worst. I mean, Virgin, there was what, I think five, 6,000 job losses in Virgin's um, receivership alone, and they might get them back. But I think Target Airways was one. And I know you actually reported on this at the time. Target was one that was, I think it was a bit underreported in a way um, in that, people didn't realize that Tiger got completely shelved effectively. I think all their, um, all their pilots were stood down completely, like completely let go, made completely redundant. So um, this is an ongoing thing, these changes and, and, and job losses. And, and I guess they talked a lot about with JobKeeper, there's a lot of what they've been calling zombie companies that are, that are sort of trading and that they're just kind of carcasses of what they were. They're not actually doing anything. They're not actually making any money, um, but they're only kept afloat because they're getting JobKeeper. And are these companies going to be sustainable after all of this is over? Like, I, I don't see a situation where you don't continue to have companies failing after all this is completely gone and, and things are even opening back up. Well, that's the thing. One of the, one of the main points when we all, went into lockdown first one of the main points that was made is that we're not going to wake up one day and life is going to be as we knew it that coming out of this is going to be a really slow process and obviously we are making steps now and places are opening up but those but like you mentioned those industries travel we may be opening up but other countries aren't and the average traveler would still be hesitant to be going to a lot of places and even if you can, you still have to, you know, most places have mandatory quarantine uh, when you get there. It's like, if, yeah, if you were to open the borders now, I don't think you'll have people surging to the, to the, um, to the terminals trying to fly overseas. Although big chunk of the population is stupid. So perhaps they would, but <laughs> you, it's one of those ones that I tend to agree in that even if they were to open everything tomorrow, which they aren't. And in fact, you probably won't see major international flights till next year. Um, where only there's, there's the test flight, the New Zealand test flight there, I think next week or the week after uh, between Canberra and Auckland to see how that goes. And, you know, we might get a trans Tasman bubble, but in terms of, uh, sustained and, and frequent travel to over to Europe and the UK. And I mean, America's off the, you know, off the list at the moment. Mm. <laughs> you can't really see that happening. Like you said, until next year. At like, the earliest. And, and Jacinda Ardern's been quite vocal against opening even the flights to Australia, even though we're both really in the same sort of boat. Um, so, you know, even again, having those flights resume, I think Qantas are talking about resuming domestic flights um, in the next, I think, month or so. And they were going to open up 40% of their original domestic routes, but that's still not a lot of flights compared because 
you know, 40% of their levels and plus Virgin aren't flying and neither are Tiger. And um, I'm not sure if the number includes Jetstar's flight numbers. So you're looking at really limited flights. Um, so it's not like people are going to be traveling too much. So the areas that you'd think, um, and I, you know, I think ideally you'll see a bit of a boom in tourist areas because people will only better travel domestically, but there's not going to be as many opportunities. Things and events are going to be different. You know, we're both sports fans where you're not going to go on an away trip to, to watch your sporting team play anywhere anytime soon. Um, just because you might, you know, whether you can go to the game or not, you might not be able to sit next to your mate because you might, they might have to sit three seats across or something. So as we come out of it and restrictions are easing, everything's going to be, as you say, completely different. And there's, you know, I've got mates who run restaurants and, and cafes and they're telling me that they can't see this current level being viable for them to open. And I think now that it's at 20 and 50, um, it's a bit different for them. But, you know, when they, when it was 10 people, they said, there's no point in me opening. I've got 10 staff in the kitchen. Like, I can't yeah, I, pay all of them. I, uh, one of the last articles I did for 10 Daily was about the hospitality industry. And I spoke to hot- uh, hospitality workers, people who owned restaurants and cafes and bars across the country. And they said the exact same thing, that, that 10 people just wasn't viable. And even if it did go up to 20 or 50, for some of the bigger places, it still might not have even been worth opening because they'd be, they would be running at such a loss that it would really put them in trouble further yeah. down the line. So it was just, it was safer for them to stay closed and like the delivery income i mean i know some places are making a bit of money from deliveries but you know we all know how much uber and menu log and deliveroo actually take i mean you might know based on some of the research you've done but i, well, I believe it's 25 or 30 percent they take out of the cut isn't it something like that and it it only gets worse <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> you you some Uber drivers, you know, could when Uber first launched, and not just Uber, I shouldn't say that, I should say uh, delivery services. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all encompassing. Uh, that when it launched, that they could make a decent living, that it could work as a full-time job. But over time, the cuts have gotten larger and mm. and particularly with uh, and the restaurant cut as well as the company cut, that it, it's really hard for them to make a living off it now. The other thing about employment as well, um, and I was actually talking to someone about this today, a friend of mine, he normally works in the city. Um, and he was, we were actually just chatting casually and he was, he's got a kid on the way. So he's not, um, he's trying to avoid going out at all because he doesn't know what the effects will be on his potential newborn. Um, sorry, he's newborn. I shouldn't say potential newborn, but he's newborn, um, soon to be newborn. Um, and we are just talking about how he's working from home now. And he's sort of saying, he's actually really enjoying it. He's getting a lot of work done, but he's someone who's in very high senior management of the company. So he's not, um, he's quite self-motivated to actually do his job. Um, and he was sort of saying he's going to find it interesting. I never actually thought about this specific point is how do you start telling workers to come back to the office? Because he was sort of saying, if he goes up to some of his staff and goes, all right, let's all go back to the office. And they turn around and say, Oh, but I don't feel safe in returning to the office. Like, what do you say? He's sort of saying, do you, are you going to be a bit of a dick and say, I don't care if you don't feel safe. And then I guess there's also the fair work component and, and the, the legislation around employment standards that, you know, if, if the person doesn't feel safe in coming into work, what, what choice does the business have to try and force them to come into work at the physical workplace? So there's all this, this transition period is going to be, if it's almost going to be harder than 
when we went into the lockdown coming out of it is going to be this really, really tricky area fraught with all these different precedents and untested areas of law and untested areas of, you know, how people interact with each other. So it's going to be really interesting because I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying working from home. I know you were before everything, but you know, at what point when these employers go, all right, let's all come back to work. Um, and I guess on the other flip side, you've got businesses who are saying, no, no, it's fine continue working from home like i think pwc is saying at kpmg like these twitter. are companies twitter is it and twitter is a big one twitter yeah uh, i have yep. i have friends who work at twitter and and they've been told probably september at the earliest they'll be yeah. back in the office and they they are pretty much big. they were one of the first to start working from home at that uh they but they it was like a choice that they could make that they were they were strongly um it was strongly recommended that they work from home. And then when uh, all the laws in Australia and the restrictions came into full force, they were told, no, you have to work from home. There mm. is no choice in this anymore. And, and now Jack from Twitter has, has said September uh, at the earliest. I know at 10, there was a stepped plan to bring people back to the office. Uh, and it, but if you didn't feel comfortable and, you know, many people don't, as you said, public transport and, mm. and offices that are in the city that don't have car, car spots that you can't park, you know, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable getting on public transport because, you know, I, I may be okay if I get sick, mm. but I might give it to someone who's not. That's right. And that was a lot of the worry of my colleagues, you know, who people who lived with like elderly parents and elderly relatives and things like that. I wonder about the shift, sorry, I wonder about the shift in mentality then in that because we've been forced to deal with this, is working from home going to become more uh, prominent, I guess? You know, Atlassian is an example of a company who said they're not going to ask people to come back to work. It's up to them. They will now make it their policy that you can work from home. And Canva's the same. These big tech companies are usually a bit more progressive anyway. But, um, you know, I wonder if that's going to change the way we view employment perhaps. I think so. A lot of, you know, we weren't in any way equipped to start working from home. Uh, that was, it was very quickly that we had to change how we ran and how we did things to accommodate working from home. And that was pretty much an overnight change for, for us. But I mean, personally, I would hate to work from home every day, <laughs> but to have that option every now and then, I think it's healthy. <laughs> And do you, do you know what this, this sparks to mind is that you're going to have to have, if this becomes a societal thing where the companies do and the, what, the, what, I guess the culture of, of, of modern corporate Australia becomes one that cultivates this mentality that you can be flexible in your working environments, you can work two days from home, three days from work or whatever else, whatever people want. But there's going to, I almost can foresee there having to be some real big overhauls to how the, um, employment law tends to work i mean i listened to um, abc radio nationals law report which is a, like it's a really interesting really well i i love any abc content like they a lot of their podcasts are really good and like they um this isn't sponsored by the abc i should add i've just given them a huge rap but um they talked about yeah that's right <laughs> send us a dm um <laughs> they they talked about at the very start of all this, the the reporter, the guy who does it, he's actually a trained lawyer as well, but he, he was uh, recording from his house for the first time. And he was talking about all these different precedents that are seemingly untested in the context of where this pandemic is. So he was talking about the idea of um, 
uh, workplace injury, workplace compensation. So if you're working from home and you trip over a cable and injure yourself, are you actually liable? Sorry, is the employer's workplace um, compensation actually liable to pay that that policy? And they had a whole lot of examples as to as to why, but all those instances were not the same as we're in a pandemic and we're all being forced to work from home. So who's liable if you trip on Lego? That's in the workplace by definition of you're working from home, but it's not the work. It's not the employer's fault. So should they be liable for that? So you've got all these different um, scenarios, but you know, I wonder for, you know, things even for tech um, being, being having your workplace computers, if you're working from home being monitored, that kind of stuff. Like, where's the rules where are the rules going to be redrawn to accommodate this new i guess era that allows us to do this and i find it really fascinating to sort of think about all the different ways that this can change i agree i also think it would be interesting to see how work if workplaces continue to do what they're doing in terms of you know flying overseas for a business meeting or flying interstate for business meetings well no one's been able to do that for the past however many months and you know zoom calls and and that kind of um and and all those will companies continue to do those instead of buying for business meetings what does that mean for again the travel industry mm. uh our, our poor friends in the travel industry if, and i uh, think like like additionally to the travel industry like corporate travel is its whole own sub industry it's a huge industry the corporate travel industry like all these businesses that are literally sp- specifically made to create flights travel packages for corporate businesses for workers and all that and and all these deals that they have with the with the um, airlines and and hotels to accommodate these traveling employees like people go back to holidays but if the workplace dynamic changes people won't be flying and, and there's a whole industry sub industry of, of sub classification i guess of this industry that's going to be completely removed and uh, people don't really know to that this corporate travel I guess world exists because it's usually for the executives. So I guess part of that might stay, but is, is that going to be enough when they're no longer catering for a multinationals constant flights back and forth with some overseas nation or, you know, flying back and forth to Melbourne telecommuting every second day to Melbourne or something like that. Like I just, I wonder much like you brought up, like the, the, I guess the knock on effects, the long-term effects of this. Um, it's, it's, it's shown, uh, how things possibly could be done differently. This whole pandemic is how things could be done differently and, and possibly the way people have adapted to things. And I go back to, to video conferencing and such that things may be able to be done cheaper and easier and, but at the cost of other industries. Here's a question for you then. So, and this is a hypothetical my friend brought up with me today um, when we were chatting about all things, um, the world. I think he just wanted to, you know, stop thinking about being stuck at home and the, and the kid on the way and all that kind of stuff. But he was talking about um, the idea that some people work really well in an office and then you get some people that will, when they're working from home will probably be a bit more distracted. So their, their um, productivity tends to go down. But what do you do if you're an employer and you've got a, a do you like in a, in a post COVID world when people are allowed to work from home and the world is now geared like that, where if you want to do it, you can and corporate Australia is like that, but you get one guy who's just not cutting it at home because he's just so unproductive because he gets distracted or whatever. Do you, are you, are you allowed to, would you be allowed to force them to come back to work and to work physically from the office or do you have to go as far as then firing them? 
Like, I feel like there's, that's just such a jump. Like to, if you're not allowed to force them to work at the office because they're unproductive at home, I feel like the jump to firing them is a bit much as well. So that's, that's where you're, I guess, however, that company's hypothetical HR system work, that's when you would have warnings and I guess mm. KPIs to meet and, you know, firing is, is your last resort in that, in that case, you'd have to go through a myriad of steps and make it very clear what was happening and that this person would have to pick up their game before we got to that final step would be my answer. What about this? I I guess that still works. Actually, I was going to say like, what if they work three days a week uh, at home and two days from the office and the two days in the office, they're killing it. The three days they're they're completely below par. It's just such a, well then as a, as a manager, you, you would then, as long as you can prove, I guess, that there is a difference in the days and had some sort of number figure or that, just be like, okay, mate, you've got to pick up your games on the days you're at home. I like that, um, you know, your immediate answer was about process. You can tell that you did previously study law. <laughs> you, you looked at it from a, all right, let's make sure we do this compliantly and properly before we fire the person. <laughs> it's a good answer. <laughs> Um, Thank you. Some people. If only I'd had the. Let's say if only I'd had the. Uh, the same, when I got sacked. But never mind. Yeah. Well, we can bring that up with uh, You can bring it up with the HR managers at Viacom. Um, <laughs> let's talk about those who haven't been sacked but have been stood down. So JobKeeper's on, on the way. Um, well, I guess it's happening for a lot of people. And then of course you've got JobSeeker, which is the equivalent, I guess, of the doll. And the JobKeeper scheme, has been an interesting one because largely it seems like that's probably a reason why a lot of the drastic more drastic economic effects uh, that we could have had haven't happened people have been able to keep being kept employed people have been able to keep working with different hours and provisions and all that kind of stuff so job keepers i guess largely served its purpose but it goes until at the moment till september and um i can tell you my company only got approved today for job keeper which was you know that's two months of applications to get there. Um, so we've got, I think four to five months that, that we'll be eligible for. Um, but we, as we just mentioned, companies and businesses and, and the economic world is going to have a long flow on effects past September. So I wonder, you know, people have been talking about it. Do you think it should be increased or like the time length, should they increase it or should they cut it off so that companies that really aren't going to make it anyway, can rip the bandaid off earlier. JobKeeper, I, I, I guess my understanding of JobKeeper is that it was it was done with the best intentions, but it was rushed, and it seems like they sort of wanted to get companies on and people onto JobKeeper. Um, although, if you take for you to take two months, that's <laughs> that's really frustrating for you. It took you. a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, they really, they really wanted, they wanted people to get on it as soon as possible to keep, I guess, the economy ticking over. And then they went, okay, now we're going to go back and sort out the nitpicky stuff. And, you know, there are people on it who are earning more on JobKeeper than they were hmm. yeah. before COVID. The six-month number at the time, I guess, sounded pretty decent in terms of we expected that Australia would probably uh, have to ride the wave of a pandemic for quite a lot longer than we have and now looking back at that September date that in some cases six months might be too long because 
they might not survive that long, particularly with a lot of places now opening up again, mm. that it might become evident very quickly that a particular company or, or business just isn't going to survive. Hence and like you said, the zombie companies. The zombie companies yeah. literally just keeping these companies on life support and I guess false hope. And when that September date does come that they will fold prolonging the inevitable. Hmm. And I, like I, I was in a shopping center the other day and I was, you know, I feel very sorry for all them. I guess, I guess it's lucky that they're still working, but all these people sitting in a flight center, there's about three people in the flight center. I kind of, I kind of laughed at it initially because I was like, what, what are you guys even doing? But I guess they have to be there to get them get paid. Like, you know, flight center is probably not doing much transactions or, you know, doing, doing much trading activity at all, apart from maybe refunds, but they're not <laughs> they're like, just canceling stuff. They're canceling stuff. Like they're just adminning really. But like, it's not like they can just go, well, there's no work for me. I'm going to go home and not work because otherwise they're not going to get paid. And I guess that's a really good example of the um, zombie companies in play. Like what, what else are they do? And when they open up in September, flight centers is a public listed company, but that doesn't mean these big companies doesn't mean they've got the money to pay out their staff. I mean, Virgin's a prime example of that. It took them a month before they were on their ass completely and they had to go into insolvency. And that's even in spite of the changes that ASIC put that reduced the, uh, I guess the threshold at which you need to, as a director under your fiduciary duty, um, declare that you are trading insolvent and that you need to go into administration. So, um, these companies just cause they're huge, you know, it doesn't mean they've got bucket loads of cash to throw around. And to be honest, sometimes they do and they're just being pricks about it. But a lot of the time they don't like flight center, you know, if we want to do the deep dive into their balance sheet with all their refunds and operating costs, they probably don't have much cash left. Yeah. And, and what would be scary for them is that they would know that as we were talking about earlier, that they're not going to be having much business. Mm for for quite a while as i said australia might be out of it but the rest of the world isn't JobKeeper has you mentioned before that like it's a really comp like it was quite complex it obviously seemed quite rushed and there was a there was a few gaps in the in the way JobKeeper was structured that has caused a few issues with people i think you know one of the big ones was at the very start the one method of assessment people a lot of companies turn around and say we can't meet that that method of assessment and the company i'm part of is one of them um we couldn't meet the thresholds so they released six alternative tests you know after the fact obviously showing that and we can understand why they had to rush it like you know we're not saying they should have taken months to delegate and, and, and deliberate on this but you know they had to release six alternative tests the week after but there are some companies that completely miss out altogether just by nature of their structure like a big one which has been in the news is that um companies owned by foreign governments aren't eligible for JobKeeper. I think from memory, the company that does the catering for Qantas flights is owned by the Saudi government's investment fund. And by definition, as a company, they're not eligible for JobKeeper. And I guess this raises two questions. Should the government, Australian government still do it? And also the Saudi government of any government has enough money to pay these people. Like they should, <laughs> they should surely be stepping in. But we know that the Saudi government isn't one that's well known for its, um, I guess, humanitarian and philanthropical philanthropy endeavors. Um, to put it as nicely as I possibly can. So, like, there's companies like that. The other one is like pre-revenue startups. Um, you know, you get there's a lot of companies out there, and a, another company I was involved with recently 
doesn't qualify because it's a pre-revenue startup, which is effectively by definition, a new company that has invested a significant amount of money and they've spent a lot of money to the point where they haven't technically turned a profit. And as such, they're not eligible for JobKeeper because any income they make is still ahead of their last tax time, last tax year. So a whole lot of companies don't apply and there's going to be pre-rev startups out there who aren't at revenue stage yet. So they're not even making any money to cover their overheads. Um, and then with, you know, decreased activity, they're just not going to be able to fund themselves. So they're going to be stuck in a bit of a, in a, in a bubble. And, um, you know, another example is, you know, to give the example that is my company, why it's taken so long is that, you know, as a company, we've received money in this year that weren't, wasn't earned this year. It's based on business activity from last year. So everything we did last year, we're getting paid for in this year. Um, meaning it's not really reflective of our actual trading activity now. So, we weren't trading or doing anything in the last couple of months as a business, but we were still technically on the books, according to the ATO, making a lot of money compared to most others. That's because that was activity from year, even in some cases, the year, a year before that. So any company that's in that situation with delayed revenue streams, they're not going to be assessed in a way that allows them to be eligible for JobKeeper. Well, then I, I put this back to you. Do you think that there should be some way of in a year's time where these companies who are, who are on delayed revenue stream, a system for them to help them out when the losses finally do hit them? I think, well, actually, I actually think the ATO, because we, as I said, we actually qualified today after two months. So we actually found a way around it, but that actually involved us, um, our accountants getting a dedicated case officer with the ATO to actually handle our matter for us because it was just that complex. Um, and I guess it, the fact that we do qualify means that the ATO are accepting the fact that our revenue streams are so delayed, but we didn't know that. In fact, that when we initially put the application to, we were just denied and rejected and we pushed and pushed and pushed the point because we said, that's not fair. We'd still, this, 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 and then it got escalated. The ATO then escalated it within them. And then it finally, someone assessed it and went, all right, we see, we understand that we accept it now. So there's going to be businesses that haven't pushed enough to actually get it. And that, they may be under financial duress because they haven't um, bothered really to push it. And I don't think the owner should be on the business. I think the ATO needs to make it quite clear or more clear that there are other avenues and there is a way for companies in these positions to get it because it's not just about the company. It's not about the owners of these businesses. It's their workers who are going to suffer ultimately if they're not eligible to get job keeper when they need to. So the ATO, I think, and I'm sure they're busy at the moment, with everything coming on, but <laughs> we're about the to end. We're about to about to enter at the end of the financial year as well. So great timing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like it's like <laughs> when it rains, it pours, but you know, like there just needs to be some more information that get that gets put out there for these businesses, or even at least the accountants and the professionals that are going to be managing that on their behalf. Um, because then at least they could provide advice to their clients to actually help them with this. So I think, um, you know, what is evident as well is that the initial forward estimates for JobKeeper, they, I think their tally was 100, was 150 billion was the figure and it's a hundred and, sorry, it's at 90 billion. So they're 60 billion under. The media have portrayed this as if it's, you know, someone, someone you know, has completely stuffed up within the, the halls of the treasury, but it seems more like it's, you know, a couple of errors with numbering and, um, has resulted in this huge error. But also I think it's probably because companies don't realize they're actually still eligible and they just haven't pushed the point and applied. 
Um, I think it's the only time that uh, a $60 billion saving has been portrayed badly. I know, like, if anything, I'm not saying Frydenberg should be patted on the back for this because he obviously didn't do it on purpose, but this is a blessing in disguise. It means if you could look at another way that there's less businesses in distress, perhaps, that, you know, um, that don't require it or haven't been applying for it because they don't need it. So, you know, that's $60 billion. I mean, and they're saying, oh, let's find other ways to spend it. I understand the theory of that, but I don't necessarily think they need to throw the money at something right now. You know, they, they sh- you know, this is a long event. A lot of things are going to happen. They need to, you know, have something sitting around in the kitty in case they need to, you know, reintroduce a stimulus in six to 12 months time. Because like you said, who knows what happens in six to 12 months time, they might need to introduce something new to, to stimulate. Like a, like a home builder scheme. That's that I right. know you're, yes. that you're, <laughs> I'm very passionate and ranted, and ranted about earlier today. Um, well, like, you know, home builder schemes, another big one um, that we saw this week that was an incentive to drive the economy. Um, and this one generated a lot of, a lot of press. Um, and I guess, and uh, what, what, what was, what you called them? The uh, blue tick, the blue tick complaint brigade. I think I referred to yes. them on Twitter. Um, it's yes. your typical because list you- of mostly journalists uh, but not always, who just find reason to complain about any decision on, on, on Twitter. Someone's just jealous they don't have a blue tick. I'm a bit jealous of that. But none of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm not jealous of their terrible views. No. Um, but, like, look, I, I work in the property industry. Um, I don't think I've actually said that on this show. But um, I work in the property industry, so I, th- this is well within my wheelhouse. But, you know, as an everyday, um, you know, layperson who doesn't necessarily understand the property industry as much. JD, what did you think when you actually saw that, that strat, that uh, scheme being implemented and talked about? Well, the, the main line that I guess the media, and I say this knowing that two weeks ago I was part of that, uh, was, you know, oh, how giving people who have a spare 150K sitting in a bank account, let's give them more money to renovate their bathrooms and our taxes are now paying for people to renovate their houses. And that was very much the line that was run through the media and sort of that's what it felt like it was coming down to. But again, we spoke about it and you highlighted some other points, which were, (laughs) (laughs) which were, and like, uh, so like for those, you know, uh, just, I guess a bit of it, because I haven't said on this show before, but I work in the property industry and uh, until recently I was actually, I actually headed up a project home building company, which is, Incidentally, where Home Builder actually mainly focuses in um, that sort of demographic. Um, and I still work in the property development industry now. So a lot of the media focus I found very interesting, centered around that whole idea of renovations. And I kind of understand that because in the lead up to it, a lot of the treasury leaks, I presume they were leaks, they may have been strategic, was around the idea of the renovations that was talked about in the lead up to it. So a lot of the leaks and, and what the media already knew was the renovation side of the, the actual scheme. But all you have to do is look at the name of the scheme itself. It's home builder. It's not home renovator. So the idea is, and I think the media has completely missed the ball on what this scheme actually is. So for those who don't know, it's a $25,000 stimulus that's eligible for anyone who um, either renovates a property, as you said, with a value of at least $150,000, um, are within certain income caps, $125,000 as an individual or $200,000 as a couple. Um, you buy as a person, you're an owner-occupier, so you can live in it. The value of the end home is not $1.5 million. Or you get the twenty five grand if you build a new home under $750,000. Now, people have missed that big core part of this policy because that is 
going to be where the bulk of this scheme gets run into and gets used is the new home section. Um, not the renovation section. I, that would probably make up less than 10% of that just based on those numbers alone, the idea of 150,000. And, and people have portrayed it because of this as a scheme which is effectively incentivizing the richy rich um, of the world, of, of Australia, to go into these sort of major renovations. But the point, and I think people, again, turning the, the focus too much on the idea of the $25,000 grant, that's not money, free money, just for these people that are doing it. This is a cash incentive to people who are probably already about to make that decision or have already made the decision to do a new home or a renovation. This is something that I, I said to you. I said, if you're going to be spending that much on a renovation or a new home, this is something you have been saving and talking about for a while. You don't exactly. just decide to do either of those things. And like a big part of this, and you know, behind the doors of the treasury, a big part of this conversation would be bringing projects that would otherwise be delayed, bringing those forward. So people who were talking about their bathroom renos, for example, to use the reno example, have pushed it back to next year. Well, this $25,000 gives them an incentive to do it now. It's not meant to be, oh, here's 25 grand. Here's a good chance to make the money because what will ultimately happen is people will use that extra cash to spend on upgrades to whatever new home or better, higher quality of bathroom or kitchen or whatever they're upgrading or renovating in their so house. Who is spending... Who is spending 150k on a bathroom? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, gold plated. What is your yeah, What is your bathroom made out of? Yeah, and like you know, people, the media has talked about. Um, there was one. There's an article today that I got really annoyed about. Um, actually, look, actually, even before I go into that, um, the the idea of this incentive again is not dumping money into someone's bank account. So they can go, oh, because I'm a property owner, I now then receive $25,000. The idea is that this money will be spent back in that industry. And I think people take too much credence to the idea that property, oh, property this, property that. The Australian public is obsessed with property. Therefore, we're giving money to property owners and damn landlords and all this sort of jazz, damn these property investors, whatever. People don't realise that property is one of, in fact, it is the largest employer of people in the country the property industry itself. Um, some stats from the Property Council, 13% of Australia's GDP is in the property sector, which is $202.9 billion. It employs 1.4 million people, um, as before COVID, of course, uh, which is more than mining and manufacturing and telecommunications combined. And to derive that out, one in four people derive their wages from the property industry, either directly or indirectly. And people don't think about the overarching effects of, of that and who it affects. So from your real estate agents to your property managers, all the way out to your builder suppliers, obviously your tradespeople, it's a huge part of it. And it's a big part of our economy. Um, building suppliers, sales representatives, so on and so forth, all the way through to the guy who's working the factory line at the concrete AAC factory, making blocks for new constructions. All these people, all their income is reliant on the property industry. And based on the sale numbers that the industry is seeing now, that showed a massive shortfall in construction activity over the next six months. So this grant in pulling construction starts forward means that there's a some chance that they're going to save some of those jobs because otherwise tradies aren't going to be working. People who are working in the factory lines at you know, CSR or Boral's facilities are going to be able to keep their jobs if sorry, would otherwise lose their jobs if it wasn't for 
um, any new construction activity. So it's not given people and it's not meant to be like the job seeker of payment or a cash injection. Here's 25 grand. Here you go. Now you're safe. You've got money to play with. It's not that it's about the jobs and growth to use that line from the election down the line. So people have got it wrong in terms of the way they're actually looking at this scheme. And there was one, you know, there's a lot of criticism for it. Um, and I think it's misguided. There was one today from news.com and I, I, don't have a, I don't have a problem with the writer who wrote this piece, but the person they interviewed was a complete idiot. They interviewed a guy. I'll be so honest about it. They interviewed a guy and I looked at his website. I won't name him on the show, but they interviewed a guy who's a property investment specialist, which is a code for I sell overpriced off the plan apartments and units with $50,000 loaded into them to the general public and then teach them investment strategies that I'm not technically qualified to be giving. There's tons of these people out there and they sell investment stock in quotation marks for ridiculous markups and tell people about wealth creation and all that kind of crap. This guy was quoted as a source in a news.com article about how the home builder scheme is fatally flawed and everything he was talking about to debunk the home builder scheme is wrong. He was talking about it. The one of the things with, with home builder is that, you have to start building within three months of that contract signing. And he was saying that that was impossible in that oh, it takes six months. It'll take six months from start to finish in council. Can't banks take this long? And I'm thinking if someone was saying this, who was in the industry to understand that maybe they've got different experiences because of the nature of their business. But this guy has no idea. He's a salesperson. Like, and they're using these people to cast credibility to what is not, the, not the, you know, it's not the most attainable of schemes, but it's still a decent job creating and, and economic sustainable scheme. Um, this guy was saying that it takes three, uh, three to six months to approve a house. You can get a house approved in three weeks and, and with no problem. And he's saying that it takes banks six weeks to get you an ACC letter. I can tell you as of two weeks ago, we got one within two weeks of getting approval. So you can turn one of these things around in six weeks. It's well within the timeframes of these um, of, of the schemes, I guess, operating life. So all these people are complaining about it, but no one's actually looking at the actual facts of the scheme or the facts of how these, um, how the grant set to roll out or even what it's for. Um, and that's have one you, that's really annoyed me, but yeah. <laughs> have you, have you already seen people interested in contacting your company about it? Yeah. So my sales guys have had, um, 57 inquiries on on that about home builder alone um, about people wanting to pr like find properties that fit within that space um, house and land packages and whatnot so 57 today alone um, and I expect more from tomorrow once I find out what their sales activities were like in the in the display homes and whatnot so there's going to be people out there that will benefit and we'll take advantage of this scheme. It's not impossible to do. And if people are buying registered land with a reputable builder, it's completely achievable. And um, most of this activity and most of the home builder scheme grant will be claimed through new home construction, not this renovation, um, which is what everyone has been focusing on. Um, anyway, we could rant about that or I could rant about that. <laughs> you could rant about that. <laughs> for a lot longer. Um, but let's talk about, some other events that are occurring overseas. I've said a lot. So this is now over to you, JD, for the most part. But there's been, um, I guess, a growing movement overseas, uh, particularly in the US at the moment. And um, the Black Lives Matter um, 
concept it's actually been around for a bit longer it's not it's not a new thing the movement has been around for a little bit long uh, quite a while actually for several years but it's sort of flared up more recently due to the actions of a certain set of police officers who have since actually been charged um, with second-degree murder, I think, at the highest level. Um, but walk us through, because this has all come up in the last week almost, this, this whole thing, JD. Well, I'll preface this by saying that we discussed this before the show in mm. that how we would. <laughs> Neither of us feel educated enough to yeah. uh, talk about this as in depth as I guess we would like to. And I should add, um, like, there's a lot of misinformation. Like, whenever things like this happen, it's so quick and it's largely a grassroots-driven thing. Is that There's so much misinformation. We don't really want to add too much incorrect information about these sort of issues as well because they're very important issues. They're very important issues. Not just incorrect, but also uh, with the best intention saying something that is wrong yeah because it's very easy and you know where I'm, I'm still very i'm learning it and i am um i've i've learned so much in the last week in terms of resources i can access to be able to educate myself and as awful as everything that is going on i have enjoyed being able to do that in uh with other people and being able to have conversations that maybe we've not had or that we should be having with a lot of my friends. So in that respect, it's been, it's been really quite eye opening. Mm. And I guess from, from an Australian point of view being as we are in Australia, mm. tomorrow will be quite interesting. Which tomorrow, yes, I should say at the time of recording is Saturday as June 6th, which is when there is expected to be protests all across the country, supporting the black lives matter movement overseas, but also reflecting on Australia's, terrible history with racism as well yeah and i think just before we actually started recording the new south Wales supreme court ruled that the protest in sydney new south wales and at the time this probably comes out and many people listen we will have known the outcome of this um or, or what ended up happening but they ruled it as, a, as an unlawful um uh, i think that there's an official legal term that's used for i can't remember off the top of my head but it's like um, unlawful unlawful gathering gathering due that's to the, right unlawful gathering due to the uh, coronavirus health restrictions that are in place. Yes. And look, I'm, I'm not going to put my opinion forward in this, but all I will say is that the weekend before we had the conspiracy theorists uh, gatherings in particularly along the East coast in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne, where they, they claimed 3000 people. Anecdotally, I've heard, more than 500, but definitely less mm. than 3,000 people gathered to protest, you know, 5G and that COVID's a lie and... and Recharging the birds and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, all those wonderful, wonderful theories. And there was a police presence. No, no arrests were made. I think that's an important distinction to make there. Sorry to cut in, but... Um, no, go for it. Because you mentioned the 500 thing, and I think the official uh, a gathering of more than 500 is, is the line that they've drawn. But they've said that, you know, they've got two demonstrations of 500 people. I think this is what was mentioned from the police to the judge in the, in the transcript of the Supreme Court ruling on this. But if there's more than 500 people there, they can't, they, they will start arresting and issuing fines under the Public Health Act. But if, it's, if they've got two groups of 500 people, then they're completely fine to do what they do. But I think what you, what you mentioned there with the 5G protest is interesting because 
my understanding is the police made some, they, they issued some move on orders, but the way they dealt with it was a largely a respectful manner in which the police in most instances seemed to deal with it, barring some videos and whatnot. But for the most part, people were allowed to express themselves and the police casually and respectfully move them on. What I'm interested to see is how it's dealt with tomorrow in, in the different States. You know, I think if we see a different reaction, that's where there's going to be a larger fallout here from this whole thing. And what's quite different is, is with the protests that we saw with the 5G and the COVID conspiracy uh, protests is there was obviously no social distancing because they're, they're, the whole premise is that they don't believe in it and, yeah. and, and you know, no face masks and things like that where those social distancing rules and you look at so many photos in, come, that came out of London with the Hyde Park protests earlier this week and they did, they were... You know, I'm not denying that they, there was violence and they did in some parts turn ugly. But Hyde Park, there there were people sat in rows, spaced out from each other, wearing masks to adhere that they understood that they are still, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and there's, I guess there's, there's no reason why it couldn't be done as, as safely as possible. There was the... Um... I guess the, the main instances that's kicked this off, obviously it was um, George Floyd um, in the US and, and his tragic death. Um, I should say murder at this stage based on what, you know, what they've been charged with, manslaughter, murder, whatever they've been charged with now. Um, and then there was the incident in Sydney earlier this week um, with the Aboriginal, um, I, I can't remember if he was a boy or he may have been a young adult, but he was um, the way he was treated um, during his arrest by the police. And, and I think one of the biggest things that seems to get people agreed, not the only thing I should add, um, but one of the big things that gets people agreed is the response from the authorities after these instances occur. And I think the, as much as I think he's done a great job in other respects, Mick Fuller, who's the New South Wales police commissioner, he came out with a completely, um, insensitive. When it, I say insensitive, it was just a poor, poor. Was no one it, advising it him from been, a PR perspective? Like it could, it couldn't have been much worse. Yeah. Like even, even uh, current, current uh, events overseas aside, and the spotlight that is currently being sh- um, shone on it, it was, it was the fact that he said that and thought that was a good idea. That that would be, yeah. everyone would be like, oh yeah, well. That's fine then. I get it. <laughs> like, yeah. For the, if you haven't heard, he said the, the police officer involved had had a bad day. Yeah. If I have a bad day, I have a bottle of wine and I watch a football match from 10 years ago. I don't smack someone's head into the ground. Well, I think so, someone, someone put it really succinctly on Twitter and said, if I have a bad day and I do that, I'm in jail. I get arrested. So like this whole double standard, um, sort of thing but you know looking we haven't seen the scenes and tomorrow remains to be seen but we haven't seen the scenes that we've had overseas predominantly in the u.s and um effectively this is a big moment a civil unrest um in 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 this decade or so for this i guess generation um and across a whole range of different cities and states we've seen huge protests um some of which have remained quite I guess, peaceful and, and, and whatnot. And then some of them have sort of degraded a little bit. And as we've seen in LA and, and Washington violence and, and looting as well. Um, 
and it's a, it's a very tricky one. And I've seen a lot of really strong debates about this where people are sort of a one side or the other where they're saying this looting is unacceptable, no matter what the outcome. And on the flip side to that point is people saying that how could you focus on the looting when there is such rampant racism going on and people aren't paying attention or, or trying to fix these issues at the highest levels. So it's this, it's a very heated debate, which is causing a, you know, a huge amount of tension across the world. I, I think the one that made me laugh was a, a certain president of a certain country said, well, why don't you just protest peacefully? And <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, they, they tried that and you told them that they were disrespectful and unpatriotic and, and weren't American. Mm. And, and I think, you know, it's like, well, what else this is all they tried peaceful. It didn't work. That's right. Like the last, you know, the, this whole, um, I guess, campaign for lack of a better word, um, we, people would remember Colin Kaepernick, um, who's, a, who's an NFL player. I forget. I don't know anything about NFL, so I don't know what his position is or who he plays for, but he's an NFL player. And effectively, he pretty much lost his job as an NFL player because he took this stance was, and knelt during the national anthem. He did. He, he played for the, the San Fran 49ers and he, he took the knee and he's the one that started that whole movement. And he, he lost his career out of it. He was back. And then Nike... Uh, brought him on as a sponsor and say his campaign and their shares fell and they were mm. you know people were burning nike products and saying it was a disgrace because they were supporting this unpatriotic person and that was i don't understand how much more peaceful you can get in terms of protest that's right yeah exactly <laughs> that's, as, that's as peaceful as you can get and he and he was told and everyone else who did it afterwards was told that they weren't american they weren't patriotic and and th this is this is where it's ended up you know something as small as a kid putting up posters about george floyd and getting not attacked but getting um i guess approached by a guy who was quite clearly cycling who's seen this and been so annoyed that kids can be putting up these signs that he's gone up and verbally abused them and pulled the rip, tried to rip the signs out of her hands and like these distressing scenes that we're seeing everywhere. And it's, I look at it and my, I personally look at it and just wonder why some of these people are getting so worked up about it. But like what I mean is the people who are so against all the protests that are going on to the point where you're abusing children to stop them from putting up flyers. If that was any other issue, you would just let the kid do their thing. But why is this, like for you, why, for them, why, why is that such a big problem? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about, uh, in amongst all the Black Lives Matter chat and campaign and, and um, social media posts and, and, and all the stuff that we've all no doubt seen all over our news feeds, um, there's been the other side of it, which is people posting the opposite um, of sorts being all lives matter. Um, which has, again, divided and created some tensions. Um, and, you know, all these people saying, no, no, you can't just say Black Lives Matter, you have to say All Lives Matter. You know, as I'm, that's kind of the position that they're taking. But, you know, I think we spoke yesterday about this, JD, and um, you had a really good analogy as to why that's the All Lives Matter is a bit of a, an interesting statement for someone to make. It is, and... I, it was because I had a proud, I had a proud daughter moment was where this came from <laughs> in that my, my dad was saying how he didn't, he, he'd had difficulties sort of 
seeing the difference between all lives matter and black lives matter. And then he was the one that said, you know, it, it's as if there's, if, and I have seen this since that if there's a house on fire, you don't try and put water on a house down the road because it's already safe. You have to focus on the houses on fire. All the other houses will still be okay. We have to save the houses on fire. And that is exactly what this is. And, and my dad was like, you know, he goes, you know, it took me a while, but I got there and I understand it. And I was, I was very proud of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was so proud of him. Uh, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's like when it's, it's not about neglecting everyone else. It's okay. We have, but we have a real issue here that we have to look at. And, and like the, the issue as well, isn't, it's not an, it's not an issue of the, the issue isn't one of just um, respect for someone else. It's not obviously that's a big part of it. Um, being respectful for everyone, regardless of, of who they are, where they come from. Um, so it's not just specifically about it's people's individual respect. The big part of the problem is a lot of the statistics that come along with this, um, not to, you know, pull anyone down to just the statistic, but the, the rates of African-Americans in, in, custody and the rates of um incarceration and um you know violence in custody deaths in custody and all that kind of stuff it's irrefutable um that the those numbers for the african-american community is higher than other sectors of society and it's i can't see i can't see why people don't think that there's a problem based on that i mean similar same with here as well the, and, but the one that really gets me is the punishments that are handed out to people. That's, That's yeah, inconsistent sentencing is insane. Like, you know, that affluenza, affluenza yeah. is a real thing that, oh, this person is really rich and they wouldn't survive in prison. Therefore, we're not going to give them a prison sentence. It, it, it just blows my, blows my mind. You get like, you see, you hear stories of, you know, white collar criminals in the US getting sentenced for insider trading, which is, you know, millions and millions if not tens to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, of of criminal activity and they're getting two year suspended sentences and a massive fine that they have to pay and no admission of guilt or whatever it is these ridiculous um sentences and then someone who was caught with a little bit too much drugs while illegal they're getting done for 10 years um in, in jail and and if when you look at some of the some of the stats and there's more far more intelligent people who do who have compiled statistics on these and I implore anyone to look them up and I'm sure we could share some of them. And and you look at the sentencing that they've been given for what really should be slap on the wrist crimes. But again, cross-referencing that with being of a minority or African-American background versus those who are white and being sentenced for the same crimes. It's, it's almost, it's almost crazy how stark the diff, the, the two numbers tend to be when you look at these, these, statistics it doesn't seem right that that is out there in the open and people seem to have been accepting of it for so long um i I think people are just too busy just getting angry about the people who are against all the the black lives matter campaign and people campaigning for just fundamental um freedoms and 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 rights and liberties in in the countries that they live in the people who are getting angry with the people who are protesting for their own rights they're just getting angry for the sake of getting angry. Like they, I don't understand how they can, how some people can think they've got a leg to stand on with these matters. It feels like uh, people think they're going to be losing something. It's like, no, everyone else yeah. is just gaining. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Like people, you're not, that's right. You're not getting. You're not losing not, anything. You're not depriving yourself of just... a right to give to someone else. That like you're just giving them the same level of respect and rights that everyone else has. Um, 
but it's but you know on the flip side i guess to round it up you know i've seen certain things you, you look at i think there was a protest in sydney um and someone had a sign as well which um said something rude about police officers it was it was a it was a reference to um dead cops effectively um and I sometimes look at those statements that people put out and I sort of think, well, you're not doing your cause any fa- You're not going to win any favors when you're putting out statements like that. And not to, I'm not saying that they don't, they can't protest and they can't express their frustrations with the status quo or anything like that. But sometimes I look at some of the statements that get put out and I think, well, you're not going to win any fans with, with that message. Not that it loses me, not that I disagree with any of the causes, you know, it it, it cheapens cheaper. That's yeah, that's a good way to put it. It, it cheapens something that is so good and so needed. Mm. And but you, but on the on the other side, you know, you you obviously see where the where the, those comments come from. And you know, if you're if, if you're living through a lack of respect for that long, and that's how you're treated, then you're going to treat them back that way. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Well, before we get cancelled, let's. Uh, <laughs> We let's move on now. Let's move on to a nice story. And uh, this is one that was at your request because in a week where there, a week, month, year that hasn't really had much fun stuff to talk about, you had found a glimmer of a story in amongst the layers and layers of bad news. I just want to thank the Australian Reptile Park for putting this story out there. The first koala joey of the year has been, uh, the first koala joey since the bushfires has been born. And they've named her Ash, quite appropriately. Oh, that's cool. And it's just, it's just a happy story because, you know, we all know, I think it was something like 800 million animals were lost during our bushfire season, which only ended like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And Feels that way. <laughs> and, you know, the koalas have started being released back into the wild, ones that were injured and, and that, but we finally we have we have a new koala joey, and I just in a week that has been horrendous needed literally some new life. Yeah. So the that Which, park, the reptile park, actually reopened on uh, June the first. Um, it did. So it was nice timing. Yeah, very good timing. Um, so I guess anyone who's actually in Sydney, if you're uh, around and want to see Ash in the flesh. Um, head on down to the reptile park and um, check that one out as well. Um, and also to support what is an excellent cause. And, and, you know, the reptile park isn't just about showing off the animals. It's about a lot of the conservation and you know, research as well. And it's the only, it's the uh, only place that milks spiders and snakes and things for antivenom. Oh yes. The big one. That's this right. The big one. That's right. Um, and I think, their, their work and, and others like it are some of the sole reasons why, you know, funnel web spiders aren't, you know, that big of a concern. Like if you get bitten by one, you're not necessarily going to die because there's, you know, yeah. pretty capable treatment. I think, I, off the top of my head, I may have this wrong, but I think it was something like two, they save 200 lives a year. That's insane. Yeah. They're crazy. Because they're the only ones that do it in the country. So yeah, Reptile Park, great place. Check them out, and they have a really cute new koala joey as well, which is really exciting. So, I take it that's the only good news of the week, really. But um, pretty much, I mean, we could touch on the fact yeah. that the NRL's back. Oh, I, and I, I, think, I mean, I'm, 
you've lost me because I just got really excited. At the end of the back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and it was a and it was a brilliant week of football as well. I know you're not particularly an NRL fan. Um, oh, shit. So I won't I won't bore you with the details. But <laughs> my team, uh, I'm a Newcastle Knights fan, and if anyone knows, uh, the Knights have uh, how do I say underperforming uh, quite violently for the last couple of years. Three wooden spoons in a row really hurts inside. Yeah. Um, And we had a brilliant draw on Sunday, which was a win. It felt like a win. It felt like I can't put into words (laughs) how good this game was. And I've watched it three times since and I still cry each time. So it's it's the little things in life these days, right? It's a little, yeah. yeah. And I think there's nothing else to do. That's right. The other news I think was that they might have crowds back in the NRL. But the preface, or I guess the caveat to that, is it's likely to be our dear friends and the true Australians in the corporate and sponsor suites of the stadium. So not quite the everyday fan. <laughs> what was not quite the everyday fan and what was quite interesting about this announcement was that it came out a few, it came out a few hours after the New South Wales government uh, said that they were taking the protests to the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> so the new, the new South Wales government approved, like, yeah, footy fans, go, fine. Uh, and so I think a little bit of the shine may have been taken off that announcement for the NRL. I feel like... Just a few inconsistencies. I feel like whoever's in charge of PR in terms of the governments, uh, and they're just not... They're not, they don't read the news, do they? Like, they don't look at what's happening around. Yeah, say that, Mick Fuller, you'll be fine. That's a completely fine statement to say uh, after an atrocious event has occurred by one of your officers or, yeah, no, announce that the NRL, tell the NRL that they can kick things off again with crowds. And just after that, schedule the release about taking the protest to the Supreme Court. What could go wrong? Like, they just sometimes are just completely unaware of what they're saying. It, yes, and it, but it, it must also be pointed out that the uh, the crowd restrictions mm. are quite they're quite stringent in that it's you know they will be each corporate area will be treated like how a bar or cafe is yeah. anywhere else and it's fifty people and it's not you know thousands of people are just going to be rocking up to a stadium next week yeah so they are quite different it was just timing. <laughs> I guess, speaking, right. of, speaking of governments and PR, I guess before we wrap up and move to uh, something else, did you see Scott Morrison's press conference about Home Builder the other day where uh, the press pack or the press corps were standing on a man's lawn and uh, he got I quite mean, aggrieved. Not even the PM is exempt from not standing <laughs> on a man's lawn. I just, I just feel it was, it was just... It was such an Australian moment as well, the fact that (laughs) some guy, some barefoot guy could just yell at the PM and everyone was like, yeah, no, that's fine. (laughs) He just said it in such an Aussie way as well. Mate. Exactly. And I mean, fair play to him. We are going into winter. Grass is really hard to, it doesn't grow in winter. Oh, and like, I presume it's a new area because it was the home builder stuff. And like, it was the home builder. If anyone's laid brand new grass, like you don't walk on it until it's like properly bedded in. Exactly. And, you know, I think his, his pathway just didn't look finished. So it looked, he'd obviously sort of probably just moved into this place. And as you said, it looked <laughs> like it was in a new development. And the last thing you need is, you know, 20 people walking on your grass. Yeah, that's right. There was, um, <laughs> I mean, like when they, when they were like setting up like the PM's lectern, I don't know if that's what they call it, the PM's little, you know, 
where he makes his speech from yep. when I was setting up his lectern and all the journals were moving off and he just kept, he just kept saying, he's like, mate, make sure you get off this bloke's grass. Like the PM <laughs> gets it. He knows. <laughs> he showed his human side. <laughs> um, before we wrap things up, let's look inside your dictionary. My Do dictionary. you have a word for us that uh, you reckon should be given a more of a run? I do. And uh, more of a run is quite apt for this word because it's considered obsolete by lexi- lexicographers. Okay. Which means that I, th- I think from what I could understand, obsolete means it hasn't been used for at least a century. Oh, right. Okay. That's cool. So yeah. this is a word that like so, probably no one knows. Yes. I think uh, it's a, it's an old English word from about mid 15th century, but okay. I felt it was, it was, it was quite apt for the, uh, not, I, I thought about it because of uh, me and my current personal situation. You can have the poll background on it. Uh, me and my current situation and, you know, I have found myself jobless and, you know, I am looking to the future, but also just for the general state of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's esperance, which Ooh. just means hope. That esperance, I've heard that so many times on like, the name of a boat in like a story or like a movie and all yes. that kind of, thing. But, but I would assume that Esperance in WA it's, is probably named after this word. Probably. It's also, yeah. it, it's also still used in French. I should probably oh. say that, but in terms of English, I'm, I may also be saying it very wrong in French, which is quite a possibility. Yeah. Uh, but in English, it's considered an obsolete word that means hope. And that is, I just felt was quite apt. I know that like, I like that word and I'm going to try and bring it back. So it's no longer obsolete, put it in your, one of your new articles, exactly, like in your new masthead, <laughs> wherever you go. I'm just going to start, start work, start using it and just act as if I don't know it's not been used since, you know, yeah. 1755. It's fine. Do you know what? Okay. I'm just thinking aloud here. Um, so Esperance, Esperance means hope. And there was a failed attempt to create like a universal language in, I'm going to say, the mid nine like 1900 some point of last century called esperanto esperanto i'm wondering if they're the same like it was the hope of a language for the world or something like i don't know maybe there's some sort of connection there you might be able to tell us that was i did actually i did actually think of um esperanto when i when i saw it i didn't actually put that two and two together like that but possibly particularly especially because hope like you know it's a hope for the world it's a universal language despite english was really that but uh, you are completely correct, by the way. Really? Oh, not very often. By... I'm that <laughs> it was created by Polish ophthalmologist L. L. Zamenhof in 1887 um, to serve as a universal second language to foster world peace and international understanding. Hence the root of Esperance being hope. Oh, yeah. well, that's really cool. We all learned something very fun tonight. If that's people are still listening and weren't triggered by our earlier uninformed commentary on both economy and <laughs> civil unrest. Um, I was informed on Ash the Koala though. But like, how do you use Esperance in a certain sentence? Cause I was going to say like, I hope people have, you know, learned I something. Esper- I Esperance people have. I have, I have Esperance that people will still be listening. I was going to say, it sounds like it doesn't work, but then again, it's an obsolete word. So I would never have heard it in context before. So it might, <laughs> that might be how it is. Wait, like, do you know, maybe, sure. maybe it's our job to put it, to create its new context. What we're going to do is we're going to call Susie Dent out and uh, ask her yes. next time on the air. Cause we're all very good friends with Susie. You know, we all go yeah, away. I mean, it, it is a nine letter word. So it is. 
Yeah. Which means it'll be in the next conundrum at some point. Yes. Uh, countdown reference for those playing along <laughs> at home. Well, I think we've taken up far too much of everyone's time. Um, a long episode this week. Thank you, for everyone, for listening. JD, it was great to have you, despite your current economic and employment woes. It was nice to have something to do. Oh, that's good. Well, um, I think you mentioned yesterday when we were talking about doing this show is that you had to actually start looking at the news again because you're not doing it every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's actually quite funny how quickly you don't care. Yeah, fair. And obviously, I mean, obviously, um, world, world issues, I have been following that. But just sort of the everyday stuff in the news, I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess that's why people listen to us so they can learn about what's happening from us. Who knows? Uh, and if you are doing that, you are in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you, you have problems. That's right. Well, if you are listening to us and you happen to be the editor of any major news publication for whatever <laughs> reason, please message JD and offer her a job. Thank you for everyone for checking out a, another episode of the JD and Turner show. Check us out on Twitter. Uh, JD and Turner show is our handle. And of course, slide into our DMs. Give us a follow. Don't forget to subscribe and show us, of course, your love. We're on Spotify, Acast, TuneIn Radio, and a whole bunch of other ones I've completely forgotten. iTunes as well. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast apps. So please check us out any, any, uh, on any of those. Um, yeah, I've been Michael Turner. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you for joining us, JD. Thank you. Can't wait uh, next time. That's right. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.